0: Hello everyone. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know that we now have digital versions of our magazine issues in our online store, theseasonals.com slash shop. For $5 each issue, you get two PDF versions and an EPUB version. If you've already bought the print magazine, check your email. You should have the digital versions there for free. Let's get on with the episode.
1: It's like there's a quote that goes, uh, my life is so far out of my comfort zone. And I think When I first started into this kind of seasonal lifestyle, that was when I started into all right, comfort zone does not exist. Let's just go for it.
0: This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Olivia Gamblin. How are you today, Olivia?
1: I'm doing well, Joy. It's great to be here.
0: Good. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, you, You've written three articles now in our magazine. The one about your trip or your time in Italy, Pasta e Parente, and Angels Wear Camo, and then also the latest one, which is, remind me again what the title of that one is. Uh,
1: That one was Embracing Uncertainty. That's that's right. Scotland,
0: yeah, embracing uncertainty. Yeah, and you are currently living in Brussels, Belgium.
1: Yes, yes. Try and draw a world map and keep track of me.
0: Yeah, yeah. So everybody, get out your maps, uh, your globes, <laughs> and a red red marker, and follow along as we go. And <laughs> <laughs> tell me about life in Belgium specifically yours, uh, kind of go through either a typical day or sort of, you know, your, your work life situation over there.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Belgium is a funky country. I think I've got a love hate relationship with it. Uh, (laughs) Belgians are very welcoming people and they have to have the weirdest way to solve problems. Like anytime you see it's called like a Belgian solution you see these Belgian solutions and you're like, why was that the answer to that problem? Like, for example, I'll be walking to, uh, I I live only a few blocks away from a fresh air farmer's market that happens on weekends. So it's usually where I go get my fruits and vegetables. And one time I'm walking walking down, down the road and there was just this fence, like fenced off the middle section of the road there's nothing in it. There's no one around it, but just this, this fence, like it had fenced off a circle in the road. And that was it. Um, still no idea what the problem was, but there's the solution. So (laughs) Belgians often have funny ways they keep life interesting, put it that way. Um, essentially I live in a house, another typical thing with Brussels, uh, it's called these bohemian style houses where you've got a house that's Uh, five six stories high and you're never entirely sure how many people live in that house because there's always someone coming through the door um so I live in one of those and I live (laughs) with (laughs) seven other people um at least I've counted sometimes there's just random people in the kitchen and you know we accept them we bring them to dinner and they become part of our our miniature cult at this point (laughs) it sounds like uh,
0: off-campus housing in college
1: yeah kind of yeah but they're really, they're really fun. They're, they're, um, I don't know the other day we decided we're a bit like a collective because some of the guys like to cook. The other ones always bring in supplies. And then, then you of course have the random few that always break out the guitar at random moments to sing and dance. Um, that's my house. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's a great place to live. But yeah, so I am running a startup called Ethical Intelligence. We're almost about a year old now, but my entire team is fully remote-based. So I am one of two based in Brussels. So most of the days I'm actually working from home. Um, We've got a big kitchen area and I'll set up shop there. Otherwise, I'm running around town for different meetings uh, or I've got my laundry list of coffee shops that at this point, know me by name and yeah, Belgium is a great atmosphere for kind of this international culture that all comes together. Especially Brussels is this melting pot of all these different cultures, which is really beautiful because you can come in from wherever you're from and essentially find your people, whether that's people from your same culture or people with the same interests Uh, we're all there in Brussels. So it makes it a very interesting and welcoming city to live in.
0: Give me the uh, sort of layman's explanation of what your company does.
1: Yeah. So uh, what I tell my grandmother is uh, I'm making sure that the robots don't take over the world. (laughs) Uh, Serious definition. Uh, So I work with the ethics of artificial intelligence. So I'm a trained ethicist, meaning I work with, well, my company works with other companies to help them understand essentially the lines of right and wrong when it comes to technology. So uh, when we're looking at problems of uh, privacy problems, like um, different social media using targeting ads that you feel like are invading your privacy. um, That's an ethical issue. So we'll work with companies to help identify those issues, uh, how to fix them, and essentially create stronger technology that we can actually trust in.
0: My question is, like when you share an article on Facebook or something, it's like, this is what good people do and then bad people do the other thing. Usually, the only people that read it are the good people that are already doing that. Is that, (laughs) do you, is there sort of any of that in uh, your field where like companies that are like trying to do good things are going to go through you or talk to you, whereas companies that are trying to do bad things maybe are going to ignore that?
1: Yeah. Um, Believe it or not, I was speaking at a conference a few months back. And I do this whole long talk about the importance of ethics and technology. And I finish the talk. And the first question I get from the audience is, but do we really have to do this? Like, oh God, either you weren't listening or I really need to reevaluate this talk. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so yeah, absolutely. We, I get it a, a lot, especially since this is a new field, a lot of what I have to do um, in terms of, well, just marketing and talking to people is first of all, convincing them of the need and then convincing them, this is how you go about solving it. There is the handful of companies that are already out there going, okay, we've recognized the need. We know this is what we need to do. And now we need to figure out how to do it. And over time, we've seen the shift already just in this past year where more and more of those companies are appearing. So it's, it's a trend that's gonna stick around for a while and starting to pick up but yeah absolutely you actually you'd be surprised by the questions I get actually at these kind of conferences they usually range between people asking why does ethics even matter versus for some reason I always get questions about racism and did babies something about me oh. ethicist. yeah exactly something about being an ethicist they're always like okay so if you had a racist baby and a non-racist baby, which one, is it okay to run over the racist baby? What are these questions? Where do people come up with this?
0: Where are these conferences?
1: (laughs) I swear they're normal. (laughs) They're normal conferences. I just seem, maybe I'm too friendly and I'm like, yeah, I'll answer any question. And then I get this question. I'm like, Okay. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that question now.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you open yourself or, you know, you look like the person that they can finally ask their deepest question to and they go for it. And you're just like, Oh, this is, uh, let's ignore this one. <laughs> let's get out of here.
1: Exactly. I, I regret smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna Run now.
0: So what is, um, sort of, I guess like a, a first level, like, Ethical intelligence situation that comes up that is usually, you know, that you see a lot that you can kind of explain to give me an example.
1: Well, I can give you an example. One of my favorite cases to work um, actually dealt with mental health, and essentially, it was this university looking to create this system that this um, algorithm where they could. Essentially spot a student who is having mental health problems based off of kind of like their class attendance and their grades and everything, which seemed at first like a really, really good idea in one sense of like, yeah, I I would want my university that I was attending to be in tune with the fact that maybe I was going through um a really hard time and needed help. Um so essentially. What we did, though, is we we worked with this university and said, OK, you have great intentions here. And it really is good intentions behind this system. But what you need to do first is actually be aware that <laughs> students aren't going to want an email in their inbox saying, hey, you might be experiencing depression because an algorithm, and AI spotted that they hadn't attended class for about a week. So <laughs> essentially what we... Had to, what we did was we advised it and said, okay, here are the ways that uh, you can best contact students. Um, first and foremost, you need to go and fix your counseling services so that your counselors are ready to take on the amount of students that are going to be coming in the door um, and know how to address what's coming through the door because you're using a new system. So that was one of my favorite projects to work and a very classic one in the sense of spotting. Um, Spotting an ethical problem before it happened. But it was one right. of my favorite cases to work because it hit so hit so close to home with a lot of my friends, a lot of the environment that I was in. So it was a really, really interesting case to work.
0: Yeah. Nobody wants to when you're sad, they don't want to hear, hey, so a robot told me you're sad. Um, maybe you yeah, should exactly. talk to somebody. <laughs> there is a better way of going about that.
1: Yeah. I'm like, thanks a lot, I think. <laughs>
0: Yeah, can you send the robot over? Can I be its friend? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That kind of reminds me. So um, a lot of people are sharing this map now that has, it shows cell phone movement in the United States. And it's being used to sort of shame people that aren't social distancing or isolating a home or stay, stay at home or whatever. And everyone's like, look, this state, you know, everybody's moving around still it's bullshit. And then, you know, there are plenty of other States that are, there isn't a lot of movement. It's like these States are doing well. And that is what that map is being used for. But to me, it's like, how did they get this map? Why are Why are they watching where our phones move around? And this is another situation where they're alleging it's, metadata but really like they can pinpoint just one cell phone if they want to and it's just like I guess to me it it sounds similar because it's like this there's this robot watching all of us yeah and they're excitedly celebrating like look my state's doing well and it's like okay how did you got to worry about the other way they can use this information unethically
1: yeah it's freaky stuff and right now there's a lot of concern of like is our personal privacy being thrown out the door because in the name of health and um, we really shouldn't be forced into making that trade-off. And I think one of the interesting things with those kind of social distancing scoreboards that really frustrate me about it is it's, it's information without context in the sense, if you actually look at the States and you look down to the counties that they're tracking, the States and counties that are doing well, are the ones that are fortunate to be able to work from home. The ones that aren't doing well are actually the backbone of the states, in a sense. They're the ones that have to go to the fields, that have to go into the stores, that have to go into the hospitals. They're the ones that have to move, that can't take this social distancing the same way that other areas that are uh, privileged in the sense that they can work from home can. So, this kind of pointing shame at each other isn't helping the situation. It's making it worse and it's causing even more pain and confusion and a time where that was the last thing that we needed.
0: Yeah, and division. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. At what point did you realize in your life or did you dream and hope that your your life was going to take place in a very, very different place and places than where you grew up?
1: That's actually really funny. So I grew up thinking I'm never going to live in a big city. I'm going to stay close to home. I'm actually originally from this town called Redwood City, which is uh, probably about 20 minutes outside of San Francisco in California. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to stay in California. I like the Bay Area. I'm never planning on moving. Then I went to undergrad in Waco, Texas, which is not glamorous at all, but very, very different from my hometown. Um, and I think that kind of started it, where it was, okay, you know what, I can pick up and I can live in someplace new. And then I remember uh I was actually dating a guy that was training to be a pilot in the Air Force. And absolute sweetheart, great guy. Um, we're no longer together, but he he really was was a great guy. And I remember one of the reasons though that we broke up, I was like, I don't think I could move every two years uh with the military like they basically you move every two years and in my mind at that point it's like no I was about halfway through undergrad and I was like no I could never move every two years I like settling down I like my my home space and everything well then I went to study abroad and I think as cliche as that sounds I think that was the moment where I finally saw this is possible. I actually can pick up and I can live in different places and not even different places within the States. I can live in different countries. I can actually live in Europe. I can move around and travel whenever I feel like it. That's possible. It was like a switch went off in my head of this is impossible to saying, nope, you know, what was standing in the way was, was my own mindset. And that just led into, I remember I was about to graduate and I I think I was, I don't know, probably like a hundred job applications in. And I remember one afternoon calling my dad and I was like, dad, I'm not filling out a single, like another single one of these damn applications. I'm done. I'm going to go do this on my own terms because you know what? Why not? I'm young. I can do this. I remember my dad's response. He laughed and he was like, I was waiting for you to actually figure that out. I always knew you were going to go take off, but finally just getting tired of hearing you complain about all the job applications. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) was a huge support. I think hearing that confirmed it of, all right, I'm not just crazy and tired of filling out these applications. This is actually something that fits with who I am. And then just haven't really settled down since, honestly.
0: So you broke up with the air force guy because you didn't think you could move around. And then now that's like, that's yeah, now I haven't, what do you
1: do? I haven't lived in the same place for more than a year since then. I think, I know <laughs> I always, I'm like, that is one of the most, that I have a few ironic points in my life and that's definitely one of them.
0: So what were you going to school for? So
1: I was studying philosophy and entrepreneurship and Italian. I really confused the, the administration.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. What was the, what were the reasons for each of those?
1: Um, so philosophy was the main love. That one actually, believe it or not, came out of an initial interest in physics and then I well, I started out in physics, realized I didn't want to do math, but I liked the theoretics, which was actually essentially philosophy, uh, which <laughs> led me into philosophy. And I just loved the fact that uh, in philosophy, you're taught how to construct arguments. You really are in control in a sense. You understand the capacity that your brain has to break down very complex topics uh, arrange them, find patterns, find uh, similarities and, and subtle differences that actually form a very beautiful big bigger picture. So philosophy is the, the kind of intellectual guilty pleasure. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Entrepreneurship is, I mean, I came out of the Bay Area. I grew up around startups, and I always knew I wanted to eventually start my own company. And then the Italian actually came – so I – I am half Italian. Uh, I have Italian citizenship and I didn't get it though until um, later in life, about halfway through my undergrad career. Um, And essentially my grandfather passed away um, right before I went to college. And he, he was Italian (laughs) through and through as Italian, as an old grandpa Yelling at the kids on the block, cooking his pizza in his backyard in his hand built wood fire oven in the backyard could be. Um, (laughs) And when he passed away, um, my dad and I discovered that we still had the right to claim our Italian citizenship. Some of that was part of me and my dad keeping my grandfather alive. So we went through the process, applied for citizenship. It was a four year long process. And uh, we're granted citizenship. And so during that process as well, uh, one of of the things I wish I'd always done before my grandfather passed away was actually learn Italian to be able to speak with him. He spoke English um, as well, but I wanted to speak Italian with him. I knew all of these different phrases, which actually once I started learning Italian, I realized some of them I shouldn't say in class. Um, But (laughs) like, thank you, thank you. No, no. Um, But yeah. So, so I started taking Italian during this this process as well. Sadly, you know, in retrospect, but it was a way to keep him alive and a part of our our lives. So that's where the random Italian bit comes in as well.
0: Yeah, very cool. And where did you study abroad first?
1: Rome, Rome, Italy.
0: Were you pretty fluent Italian when you got there?
1: Um, I'd say, so I lived in Rome twice, once while studying abroad. And then Rome was actually the first place I moved back to uh, when I moved overseas the first time. Well, the second time, I guess you could say. The most recent time. Oh, yeah. So the first time I moved to Rome, I knew enough that I could get around. Definitely wasn't anywhere close to being fluent but I knew enough where I wasn't afraid to go to the grocery store or I could order at a restaurant. If I got lost, I I knew how to ask for directions. Uh, It was actually the second time I moved back to Rome and I started up a tandem with um, who's now actually a very good friend of mine, a guy that lives in Rome. And it was that process. Basically my Italian was about as good, Or bad depending on how you're viewing it as his English (laughs) and so we would meet um, a few times a week over wine and we would talk in each other's languages and so uh, it was always very entertaining for people to hear us in these bars because there was me speaking in this English accent (laughs) in Italian and my friend with the very clear Italian accent speaking in English back to me. It's like, clearly you two are speaking the wrong language right now. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) But that, that experience uh, really made a world of difference in terms of my Italian. And, And now, now it really is my, my second language.
0: You study abroad, you get out of college. And what's, what's the next step after that?
1: The next step after that was... Technically Austin Texas, I lived there for the summer, basically getting my I called it like my online business. I was doing graphic and web design, but getting my feet underneath me, ready to preparing actually to move overseas um, and that was a that was a fun time. I basically worked like half the day and then would go climbing uh, the second half of the day so that was more play than work um, but the first Step the true first step after that was actually back to Rome, where I uh, lived and worked on a digital art residency out of the Vatican for I think it was about three months.
0: So, you, when you were in Austin, you said you were getting ready to move back to Europe. How did how did you know, or what was what was the plan?
1: Well, I knew I wanted to move back to Europe, and it was just kind of a matter of figuring out where, um, and I chose Rome as the first step because I, well, even before I was accepted to the digital art residency, I chose Rome as the first step because it's, and even now to this day, it's, I view it as my European home, um, is the first place that I got my feet underneath me overseas. Um, and I absolutely love the city. So <laughs> I was Knew I was throwing myself into a very uncomfortable situation, but I figured I might as well have some comfort, some familiarity, Uh, (laughs) so I'm not going full turkey, cold, cold turkey, whatever it's called, right away into a country where I didn't speak the language and I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know the city at all. Figured I would take a baby step a bit and go someplace that I already knew well enough.
0: Yeah, a little bit of a soft landing there. Yeah, yeah. And how did you find the residency? Or what what were you looking for that you then found the residency?
1: Honestly, I cannot remember how I found it. Um, (laughs) I guess uh, fate, something, fell in my lap. And um, it was really good. So it was was out of the Vatican. It was this couple out of the Vatican. It was called the uh, Blece Verita Project. And essentially, um, it was bringing together young digital artists, uh, in this apartment in Rome and you'd come for a few months and they would basically kind of just provide this, this space where, uh, I mean, we were, we were working on a, on a variety of different projects, one of which was actually for the project itself, essentially designing for the, that project, helping out, um, different communities in Rome <coughs> kind of doing volunteer work in that sense, uh, through our digital our, our digital abilities um, but then we were also given this space where we could explore different mediums we could uh, work in collaboration with each other um, in the heart of what is truly a very inspiring city
0: How did you know that or I guess what was what was your reasoning it sounds like you knew and definitely wanted out of the states and into Europe what was sort of the overarching idea for that.
1: That one was <laughs> okay. So growing up, I would meet these kind of adults and you go to these adults house and they would have all these really interesting artifacts from all of their travels, and all these crazy stories. And I always remember thinking, wow, these people are so cool. I could never be like them, but I, I, they became kind of like my idols Honestly, they were just, they were just kind of like my parents' friends, I think. But you know, the people that, that would that were well traveled and had all these interesting stories. I was always like, "Wow, I, I would love to be like that." Again, I didn't think it was possible until I took that semester in Rome, and that was the first kind of clue in of hold on, this isn't actually as as impossible as and as far a reach as you thought, and. I essentially just loved the freedom I felt when I was living in Rome. Europe's very easy to travel around. It's very easy to go from one culture to another to another and meet different people and and see different ways of living. And to me, that was just fascinating. I felt like I felt a different type of freedom in Europe than I ever did in the States. And it was something that I wanted to pursue.
0: Have you now that you've traveled a lot and you're living in Europe, have you talked to any of your parents' friends that had those artifacts?
1: <laughs> yeah, now now they're the ones asking for what's Olivia up to today. Now it's it's in the reverse reverse kind of situation, but it is nice actually being able to swap stories with them now. And I've got my parents sitting there going, "Who is this child?" So <laughs>
0: do you have any artifacts that you're starting to collect that you'll be showing in, in wherever you end up?
1: I collect street art, not the kind of like cheesy photographs that the kind of copy paste ones that you'll see in the touristy sections. Um, I'll collect street art from local artists that I find in these small little villages off some random path. And they're usually kind of eclectic, I've got, I've got a very funky, for example, I have a a painting of a chicken underneath it, written swag um, from Croatia. (laughs) (laughs) That one one (laughs) I got mainly because my mom really loves, I have no idea why, but chicken paintings. And that is her usual decoration for our kitchen back in California. And so I saw this and I was like, Oh, mom would find this hilarious. I have to buy it. So it's in that sense, I, I pick up artifacts, like uh, street art in that sense. And then it's not a physical artifact, but uh, I trade playlists with people. So I'll make friends from different cultures, obviously, and I'll trade a playlist with them. So I've got playlists of German rap, like Italian love songs, Belgian, whatever it is. The most recent one is Finnish pop music, which is really bizarre. <laughs> it, it's not a solid artifact, but it, it, music tells a lot about a country. Um, and then the playlists tell a lot about the friendship that I made. So those are very valuable to me and are a lot easier to pack than something big and clunky. <laughs>
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, Scandinavian takes on any genre of music usually turns out pretty pretty strange.
1: Yeah, like I was listening to one the other day. It, it was literally... The song covered like five different genres in one song. Like, what is this?
0: <laughs> Have you heard a Flemish genre of music or a Flemish playlist?
1: Yep. It's <laughs> so... I like to describe Flemish as Dutch with a French accent, so it kind of sounds like a made-up language. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm really hoping no native Flemish speakers ever listen to this podcast; they'll probably be offended. <laughs> but it's this like weird sing-songy, yet harsh language. So when it's sung, especially in rap version, like gangster rap, they're trying. You just want to laugh, and it's not at all intimidating like they want it to be. So,
0: (laughs) I I think when you said uh, they're trying, that's probably the most offensive thing you've said. Exactly, they're attempting gangster rap.
1: Exactly, I'll give them. I'll give them that. They're trying. They put an effort.
0: But I'll remind everyone, you're from California, so you're allowed to judge gangster rap harshly.
1: Exactly. Thank you.
0: yeah you're welcome here. <laughs> you find yourself in Belgium now you've been you lived in Rome where what other places have you been for longer amount of time?
1: So, I lived on a farm in Tuscany for a while. I lived up in Scotland in Edinburgh, and then I guess technically, there was a summer there where I just lived on people's couches and was on a very long road trip. So that one, that one was a funny summer where I had to have mail forwarded to the parents of some of my good friends living over here because I, I just I did not have an address at that point. But that, that was a fun time. So Tuscany, Scotland, Brussels, obviously, and my backpack.
0: <laughs> what were you doing in Scotland? I, I think Scotland and Ireland right now are for Americans that don't, Travel or travel a little more bougie. I think those are the hot spots right now.
1: Travel <laughs> more bougie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was up in Scotland. Uh, first and foremost, I was doing a degree at the University of Edinburgh. I was getting my master's in um, actually ethics of artificial intelligence. And then I was also working some pretty interesting side projects up there. Um, they ranged from working for a music festival that this ridiculously rich couple would throw in their personal contemporary sculpture park that was slash a museum slash a festival place. It's quite bizarre.
0: Oh, it sounds, that it sounds bizarre.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a, it was a fun project though. Yeah. The Scottish, the Scottish are fun. So I, I was, yeah, up there, Studying and then just doing my normal graphic and web design on the side, those kind of projects.
0: What did you think of your time in Scotland, like not academically, just traveling around or living there?
1: The Scottish are a very feisty people. They definitely worm their way into my heart. Um, I love them. They are, uh, I think now I can say properly, I speak Scottish. And drunk Scottish. Um, drunk Scottish took me a while to learn because, oh my God, you, you'd hear these people and you're like, that can't possibly be any words whatsoever. Not even a language, just words. That's not words. Uh, <laughs> yet it is. But <laughs> um, No, they're, they're, <clears throat> they're great people. They're really welcoming and just friendly. They're happy to have you there, which makes it a very fun country to be in. You they're very friendly, they're, they're you get to know them very quickly, and they like showing you, I guess, the wonders of Scotland. Since um, Scotland is not necessarily the easiest to get around, you definitely need a car if you want to see the actual beautiful locations there that there are out there, and you also have to learn how to drive on the left side of the road. Which I'm still <laughs> Now, when I drive here in Brussels and I have to get on the right side of the road, there are still moments where I turn out of the driveway and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm on the left side again. Um, so it kind of messes with your brain. But if you, if you can get a Scotsman to show you around, especially the northern areas of Scotland, it's just breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. You feel like you're in, I don't know, some Lord of the Rings movies, honestly, with that kind of scenery. The light up there is insane. I think the only downside is in the winter. The sun goes down, it starts setting setting at three thirty like it's dark at four it, which is just i being Californian, I couldn't fully adjust to that it's still I still complain about it, and I don't live there anymore
0: <laughs> yeah, that is uh that's always. One of the, the make or break things is in, in Alaska, I go there in the summer and it's great. The sun comes up at 3.30 in the morning, goes down at 11 and cannot do a winter there. Just not enough sunlight, I don't think.
1: Yeah, you go a bit crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've read the story of you on a Tuscany farm many a <laughs> times. I would I would love to hear sort of the director's commentary on the story.
1: Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, that that one's one of my favorite stories, and that's I think everyone in life has a story where they're like, "Holy fuck, I actually did that." That story is definitely one of those for me. Yeah, essentially, I had a friend who had a friend who knew this guy that owned an Acatrismo, which is um, a farm that's also kind of like a B and B as all Italian deals work, you know, someone who knows someone who knows someone. And I was given the vague directions to get on a train at a specific time going in one direction and uh, good luck. Uh, Get off here and we'll find you. And I had no working cell phone. I honestly didn't really know where I was going, but I was like, Oh, you know, why not? Let's see what happens. Ended out on this beautiful, beautiful farm out in the middle of of Tuscany and was just kind of uh, adopted by the people that worked the farm. It was an off season. And so they were busy working, creating, er, making more um, sauces for their pastas. They were making jams. So I was kind of this taste tester slash the cooks were always afraid that I wasn't eating enough, even though I was eating probably about three times (laughs) the amount that I normally eat. But they were all characters living on this living on this farm but they were so welcoming i think that was one of the best parts i mean they had this thick tuscan accent which i can give you an example so in traditional italian to say what you say cosa with a hard c but the tuscan dialect turns all the c's into this kind of h sound so instead of saying cosa they would go cosa and for like the first few days, I would just look at them like, what are you saying? And all they would repeat was, Hosa? Hosa? Like, Like, that's not helping me understand you. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> so I finally, finally actually had to ask a friend, like, okay, you're from this area. What is this dialect? He's like, anytime you hear an H, think C. And then I finally figured out how to kind of talk to them.
0: That was uh, the key.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was like, oh, okay, now I understand. Yeah, they were great people. I got lost one day trying to get back to the farm though. Cause I got, I had to go to the train station um, <laughs> to pick something up and then art. Okay. Apparently I didn't understand the dialect as good as I thought, because they, I thought they were going to pick me up. And instead I end up on this like sketchy public bus with all of these really intimidating Italian teenagers, like yelling and looking at me in the back of this bus. I end up out in the middle of nowhere. And thank God I had been wandering the farm enough that I knew the hills around it. Because I literally was let off in this this town. And town's a strong word. It was like five houses. And they're like, okay, <laughs> town,
0: Town's a strong word. <laughs>
1: town's a very strong word. And I was like, okay, I kind of recognize that hill over there. And so I just walked something like for three hours and I finally made it back to the farm. And I remember walking up onto the farm and everyone's there kind of freaking out. They're like, where did this random chick, she's where did the random American that's been staying with, where did she go? We lost her. And they were starting to worry. And I show up they're like, what have you been doing? And I was like, Oh, Oh, I got off the bus where you told me to get off, but no one was there. So I, I walked here and they're like, who? the fuck do you think you are? What were you doing? <laughs> like I just immediately earned their respect because I had essentially hiked for three hours through these Tuscan hills and used the, you know, the way of the hills and this moon and the stars or whatever to guide my way back to the <laughs> farm. <laughs> so I had their respect from, from that day on. I was, I think the next day they invited me to the, not a family dinner, but like a farm dinner, one of the one of the women that worked on the farm had everyone over for this big beautiful dinner, and that was that was one of the i think the best meals in my life but uh yeah, I was kind of accepted and after that i i earned my keep
0: yeah, yeah to them, it probably seems heroic and you yeah. know like a a feat of strength but to you it's like okay how do you how did you expect me to get home if I didn't do that
1: yeah exactly like, necessity. Yeah. What else was I going to do? Seriously.
0: Right, sit at the bus stop until somebody remembered that I was missing.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like wait for the next bus driver and make friends again or I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, strange. I I wonder what they would have done if the if it was in America in the like
1: <laughs> Oh god. Yeah.
0: I don't know. So yeah, so you went to this amazing dinner and mm. you were you're making labels for this farm, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the, one of the things I was doing for them.
0: And how did, how did the whole the trip end up?
1: Let's see. So I was there for about a month. So by the time I left, I'd gotten to know them all pretty well. Oh, and I remember it was my last day. We were decorating the farm for Christmas. Um, and at this point I knew all, I knew everyone that worked there and, we were all joking around and it was actually very, fr- it, it, it was friends. We were all friends at that point. And I remember the owner of the farm coming up and the original deal was I was trading, uh, basically I was helping um, design these labels and I was doing some uh, translations for their website and the random email that came in, but I was trading work for room and board. And that was it. I mean, they they fed me too much (laughs) for an entire month. I had this really cozy little bedroom and that's all, that was the deal. We were exchanging it that way. But I remember uh, I'm leaving the next morning and the boss, the capital, comes over and he goes, okay, now I like your work. I was like, thank you. And he goes, we stay friends. Yes. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And he goes, okay, come here. Brings me over to the desk, opens up this drawer, digs through it, pulls out this kind of Sketchy looking envelope, and then just proceeds to pull out all of these 50, 50, uh, fifty euro bills and just starts like counting them off to me <laughs> and like hands me hands me this money and he goes, "This is for my friend." <laughs> what? He's like, "Yes." Wait, and, like counts off a few more and hands them to me and I was like, "Okay, I'm not gonna say anything, and this is definitely under the table. I'm just gonna walk away and say thank you." And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure that our paths cross again in the future because uh this has been an amazing experience. And um yeah, one one day I'll be able to make it back through. Yeah. It's just a very isolated farm. So not the easiest to to go see. But uh <laughs> they're great people.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was the whole time I'm imagining they're Italian and then all of a sudden he got very Russian when he's like <laughs> we are friends, no? <laughs>
1: Okay. Or my friend. (laughs) We are friends. Yes. Okay.
0: What was sort of your decision making at the time? Were you were you looking ahead to the next step? Were you unsure?
1: That time I knew about a week after moving to the farm that I'd be moving to Brussels afterwards for the first time. Yeah, I, I moved to the farm and then about a week after my project for Brussels came through so i knew okay in the new year i'll be moving to brussels for 5 months so that was one of one of the times that i knew where i was going most of the time and it always cracked up a lot of my friends and i think my mom's lost a lot of sleep over it but oftentimes i don't know exactly where i'm moving or going or living until about a week before and then it all just kind of falls into place so count myself as a very lucky person.
0: How how do you find these projects or, you know, the farm or the projects in Brussels and all of that? Like, give me something actionable that you, you do.
1: It's always hard for me to give kind of the actionable points. Cause I, I, I realized it was just kind of habits that I picked up. And so I have to be very retrospective in a sense to actually figure out what I do. But a lot of it is just through a personal network. I can be not vocal. That's the wrong word. But when I meet people on the road, when I meet friends, I make new friends, um, they always know that I travel with different projects and they usually know what my timelines are just because I'm making friends and where I'm staying and comes up naturally in a conversation of, oh, I'm, I'm here for five months on this project. And the next question is, so what are you doing after? And, oh, I don't know. I'm looking for other projects. And then it usually gets passed around and goes from, from there. A lot of it, really, honestly, a lot of it is just through being, <laughs> it sounds weird, being a friend, but in the sense, and this, this comes back to having friendships with kind of this seasonal lifestyle, uh, you have to put in an extra step where you make the conscious effort to reach out and check in with the person, even if it's once a month, once every other month, you're checking back in with those friends and you're being very honest about your life and you're telling them what's going on, even though you may not see them for significant lengths of time. And that kind of friendships that you build, honestly, a lot of my project work has come out of those friendships because someone had an uncle that knew a guy that had a cousin that was looking for someone to do this kind of work. I mean, the world's small. You just kind of have to, honestly, you just have to ask.
0: Yeah. I think you're describing another layer to the network that most people know about there to most people. I think networking is, Oh, I know this person, this person, this person. And when something in this subject comes up or I need something from this, I'll talk to this person but yeah. the the next step that you're talking about is someone that you've befriended or in your network they are they know when and what you do and that you're looking for and so they when they find it will come to you about yeah it.
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah i think that's that's an incredibly powerful tool to have and a, a, a probably a blast to create a life out of where that network takes you.
1: Oh absolutely. There there are definitely moments where I'll wake up and I'll go, how in the hell am I here? And I mean it all connects in some way. And I can follow the logical steps for how I ended up there, but it's still there are moments where my own life takes my breath away in a sense. It's like, there's a quote that goes, um, my life is so far out of my comfort zone. And I think when I first started into this kind of seasonal lifestyle, that was when I started into, all right, comfort zone does not exist. Let's just go for it. Having those moments where this kind of beautiful network, (laughs) network sounds cold, but this, this, this network of people that I've met along the way of this experience the fact that i've gone okay you know what there's no no such thing as a comfort zone if someone says i've got this project and it fits with my timeline then hell yeah i'm going to try it out and i end up in these bizarre situations but they're amazing they really truly are amazing i don't know i like it cuz you get to know such interesting people and i mean i have this like open door policy in a sense where anyone I meet, like if you need a couch to stay on and I have a couch at that moment, like it's all yours. Like I had a friend, the most recent one I have. Okay. Let me see if I can trace this. I have a, I had a good friend studying in Manchester, a good friend from Rome studying in Manchester. And she made friends with a guy in her class from Chile. And the guy in Chile wanted to come see Edinburgh. And so somehow we got connected. And I had met him like twice before over just like a, I'd been down to Manchester to visit my friend and I get this random message from him and he's like, Hey, so can I actually come stay on your couch? And I was like, yeah, for sure. So he came for like a weekend and we hung out and it was fun, but it's that kind of open door policy. I mean, like it's something that I always am very grateful for when I run across other people that are like, yeah, come, let me, let me help you out. Um, come stay on my couch. And it's something that I want to return as well into that kind of network of, of people that I have formed.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the lore into your network. It's like, come, come stay on my couch, be a part of the network.
1: Join my (laughs) cults. Oh, my, my, my team laughs because I do the exact same thing in business. Now it's very interesting watching the kind of skills that I've learned from essentially the seasonal lifestyle, how it's translating into a more into the business realm. (laughs) And my team came up with a challenge a few months back where they're like, okay, we're going to find one contact that we really, we really, really want this contact, but no one, none of us know how to get to this person. And then they started timing me to see how long it took for me to get in contact and I think one of them, the best one was I already knew the person. They're like, how the fuck do you know this person? Like, oh, I don't know. I met him at the conference this time and went out to beers and, you know, the usual. Like, that's not usual. Oh, well, I know him.
0: <laughs> I got it done, okay? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Like, Don't question my methods.
0: Some of the the random questions from throughout this conversation, let me... Let me hear your Mount Rushmore of philosophers. (laughs)
1: Um, I actually really love Nietzsche. I think he's, uh, I like him because he's different from the rest of the philosophers. There's a couple of his writings, which is basically a commentary on the other philosophers of his time going like, y'all are full of bullshit. Um, And I really (laughs) appreciate that. And then on the flip side though, I really, really love the writings by C.S. Lewis, who is not traditionally considered a philosopher, but his pieces I think are fascinating. If you ever want a really just crazy, interesting read, I s- would always suggest The Screw Tape Letters. It's very simple to digest, but it's essentially, and it's really short. I think maybe only like 150 pages, but God, it yeah. took me so long to get through. Cause it was like every, every chapter I'd have to sit and go, Oh, okay. Hold on. <laughs> um,
0: so yeah, as a, as a non-religious person, I, I, I love uh, mere Christianity and the screw tape letters yeah. from CS Lewis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. God.
0: And it, it's funny that you, <laughs> so basically Nietzsche's the distracts.
1: <laughs> of the
0: philosopher <laughs> brings brings back your california rap roots as well
1: yep exactly Kind <laughs> of stay true to them
0: yeah i wasn't sure uh which direction you would go because it sounded like you came to philosophy from uh the science side so,
1: uh, so yeah, maybe yeah.
0: maybe it wasn't like the actual philosophers that did it for you is more the relationship between nature and science.
1: Yeah, it wasn't necessarily. I'm actually a very bad philosopher in the sense of most of my other philosophy friends could go on for days about oh, I list this this philosopher and this philosopher and this philosopher, and I'm like, I got a few that I like, but really, yeah, like you said, the parts that are interesting to me are the theories, and I'm also really, really bad at remembering names, so I'll know a theory perfectly, like inside and out, and God help me if I'm going to remember what philosopher wrote it.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause they all have wild names as well. Soren Kierkegaard and all <laughs> like, you guys aren't making this
1: easy for us.
0: No, not at all. <laughs> no. Like Carl Young is probably the, maybe the easiest one to remember. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Carl.
0: A nice. Yeah. Nice. Easy name. Keep it up, bud. Yeah. <laughs> what is a lesson that, you learned or had ingrained growing up in California that you use throughout your days and travel and work.
1: Ooh. <laughs> it's not a very positive lesson though. That's the problem with that one. That's okay. <laughs> um so one of the things the kind of lessons that you grow up thinking, especially in the Bay Area, when you grow up around these, uh, where everyone's the CEO of Facebook, it feels like you kind of grow up with this feeling of like, I need to be a CEO, I need to run my own tech giant company, and everything I do will not be enough until I actually achieve that, and I'm defined by my work. Not so much lesson, but that mindset w- was really hard actually for me to get over at first in terms of making a transition into a more seasonal lifestyle, where one of the things one of my favorite parts of the of that kind of lifestyle is the fact that i'm not defined by my work. my work is something that I enjoy doing, but i'm so much more than that. I have so many other aspects within my life, and so i tip my hat towards California. And I thank it for, in a sense, the area that I grew up for the motivation and the drive that I grew up to learn, but it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes that incessant drive to do better ends me in in directions where I'm like, you know, I'm not actually happy doing what I'm doing. I, I want to be content with my life. I don't care that I have big titles or anything like that. So it's a love hate it's a love hate relationship. I'm happy for the motivation that I learned from California and it's giving me something that I need to learn how to move past at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's a great great answer to that. Based off just talking to you and your articles it looks like you've been really successful. And I'm I know, especially in the age of Instagram, that everybody's got stuff going on in their own life that doesn't come out. But it, it looks like you're really successful, you're an awesome person, tons of people like hanging out with you and like having you as a big part of their lives. So my question to you is because you are successful in what you've done and in a in a, in a lifestyle that I think a lot of people that I know and that listen would like to kind of get into everyone's in 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 America anyway is sort of in like isolation or quarantine now and i i would guess that it's going to last for at least another 2 months so your you can cut as many corners with this answer and you know take the best route that you feel comfortable with but for someone that is out there that say maybe has a degree that they're not using is realizing during this that they're not as happy what with what they've been doing, what used to be normal for them. What should they do for the next two months? And then what is like a good trajectory or like thing to strive for the next three years to get towards sort of a travel successful business sort of lifestyle? And I know that's yeah. huge, but just take it wherever you want to.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very huge question first off, I think my, my articles and my social media definitely portray the good sides to my life. There's a lot of shit that goes on in there, which of course it's harder to share sometimes, um, but does need to be addressed. I mean, there are days where I miss being home. I miss my family. I miss, mm, life events with my family a lot because I'm not there and that's really hard so I think one of the first steps um, and probably not the step that everyone wants to hear but really take a critical eye at what a traveling business looks like what life on the road looks like you do have to give things up and you do have to Give up a certain sense of stability in life, and tax season is going to be a nightmare for you. And really take a critical look at okay, these are all of the negative aspects, and then look at everything that you'll be gaining. That sense of freedom, being content with where you are in life, um, the ability to define what your day is going to look like, and make sure that that's the trade-off that you want to make. It's not at all an easy lifestyle. This isn't easy, breezy, like I I, Instagram can sometimes portray it to be. Um, And I know this is a very serious note, but it's it's true. You you do need to know what you're getting yourself into. And I think that's something that you can really do right now um, in this quarantine time. You have the headspace to think, okay, this is my end goal. What would I have to give up to get there? And what am I going to gain? And if that's a trade-off that I want, then make sure that I understand that because there are going to be moments along the way where you're going to be giving up something and you're going to go, this fucking sucks. Why am I giving this up? And you have to be able to look at what you're gaining in return and go, that's the reason why. I wanted that and I still want that. And that's the reason why I'm doing this. So the first step is understanding what's the trade-off is it a trade-off you're you're looking that you're willing to make and what's the main reason why you're doing it so you can continue when times get rough and you don't throw in the towel and, and run away and then once once you kind of have that burning desire nailed down you know what you want you know the reason why you're doing this the next step and I think this is coming from my personal experience, the next step is just getting it through your head that all of those kind of societal constructs of I need a job where I have a stable income and I know exactly how much money is coming into my account and I can uh, exactly pay for all of these things and all of the subscriptions that everyone else pays for because I think I'm supposed to pay for all of these subscriptions. Get that out of your head, (laughs) It's not an easy mindset to overcome, but truly, we have the power to control how we live our lives. And it's just figuring out okay, I'm going to be in times of uncertainty and I am not going to have that kind of stable set life that everyone else follows. But that's not a downside. That is power. That's control back into my own hands. The fact that I can go, yeah, I don't, I don't have that luxury, but I don't need it. I don't want it. And by giving up that, what looks like a luxury or, 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 uh, not even a luxury. What looks like something that is supposed to like an essential for your day-to-day life isn't actually an essential. It's just something that we've kind of tricked ourselves into thinking is an essential being able to think beyond that and going, you know, actually, I don't need that in my life.
0: So yeah, Um, give up Disney Plus and Hulu and Amazon Prime and HBO Go.
1: Yeah, like, and giving up the idea that when you travel you get to you're going to stay in these fancy hotels or something like that. Like, honestly, I can't remember the last time I stayed in a hotel. Most of the time, I'm staying on someone's couch that I've known like a week prior. (laughs) Obviously, I stay safe, but. Giving up on those, on the traditional way of doing things, going, you know what? If I can think it up and if I know I can make it work, then it doesn't really matter what anyone else says. If this is the way, if no one else is doing it this way and it's working for me, then cool, figured something else out that no one else did. And being able, being okay to run with that rather than getting sucked into, oh, but this social media influencer doesn't do it this way, and that must mean I'm doing it wrong. No, there's no one one right way to do this.
0: Okay. So I've, I've chosen how I'm willing to suffer for what I want. (laughs) I've given up all my subscriptions. What's the next step?
1: Pick your first location. I picked one that I was familiar with because it gave me just enough of a push. It was just far enough out of my comfort zone without being completely out there. Like when I, when I moved to Rome, I knew a few people already in the city. I knew the language. I knew the city. And that was just enough to get, take that first step. And then after that, I just kept pushing myself further and further to that time. Like I, I, when I moved to Brussels the first time I knew technically one guy, he was the one I was doing the project for. I did not speak the language. I had seen the city Once for like two days, I had no idea what I was doing, but it was just kind of slowly easing myself in. So, yeah, back to that point pick your first location because then it becomes real and pick the date because those are kind of set hard goals in your mind. And you go, okay, one of the things I really learned with the seasonal lifestyle is I set the date and I set where I'm going and I figure the rest out because I'm when it comes down to it at the end of the day, it's on my shoulders. And I've learned a lot about myself by putting, by being in these situations where it's like, all right, I don't know where I'm living. I'm going to figure that out. (laughs) Sometimes it's in very bizarre ways that you figure it out, but you do. But by setting a date, setting a location, then it becomes real. And you're going to be scared shitless, most likely, but At the same time, you're going to have something that you're working towards. You have something that starts materializing it rather than it just being this vague plan. You're like, no, I am moving um, at the end of September to Rome. That's what I did. But this is what I'm doing. And then I had a month or two where I kind of went between freaking the fuck out and being really excited and got on that plane and the rest is history.
0: Yeah, jumping into something when you don't know a lot or like how it's going to go is sometimes the best strategy to make it work because then it'll definitely happen and out of necessity, you make it work. Yeah. And you figure yeah. out a lot about yourself about how you make things work from that.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great strategy. I like it. <laughs>
1: I know it took a bit of a darker turn at the beginning than people probably expected. It's like, okay, let me get real serious with you now.
0: No, for somebody whose favorite philosopher is Nietzsche, I think it went exactly how I expected it to.
1: (laughs) My true inspiration.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, Olivia, for coming on and talking to me today. It was wonderful to hear about your story.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Joey. Really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out.